you're listening to The Insecurity Project, solving the insecurity problem at a global level. This podcast is a mixture of interviews, coaching sessions, and personal development content. You'll hear me chat with experts, authors, speakers, and individuals who've gone on to do great things in their life as a result of working through their insecurity. You'll hear brave souls being willing to have a live coaching demonstration recorded where they work through their insecurity. And you'll hear 10 Minute Tuesday, which is a chance for me to deliver high quality personal development content to help you on your journey. I hope you find it useful. Now on to today's show. G'day folks, Jamin here. You're on the Insecurity Project. Today I have the great privilege of interviewing Dave Jornas. And Dave is an emotional intelligence expert. He runs the Do Life Better podcast and the founder of Project Hatch, which is all about running retreats and workshops for high school students focusing on emotional intelligence, well-being and spiritual health. So thanks, Dave, for being available today and really uh, grateful to have you on the show. Hi, right, Jamin, it's an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you very much for reaching out. And um, I love the work that you're doing and helping people uh, increase their self-belief, their self-worth and their value. So thanks again. Yeah. Oh, no, my pleasure. It's, it's always fantastic to connect with people who are doing great work and uh, kind of share a, a heart response to, you know, help people be good at being themselves and overcome the stuff that, help, mm. that, that holds them back. So really interested in your journey and how you've got to where you are today and, and some of the key insights that you use, especially working with young people, because I think um, it's, it seems like such a massive issue for this generation of youth growing up that mental health is such, such a big deal and uh, yeah, a lot absolutely. of young people are very lost when it comes to mental health. So be really fascinated to hear the work that you're doing and some of the insights you've got around um, mental health and well-being, emotional intelligence, especially when it relates to youth. Um, but, but firstly, to your journey. So I'd uh, love to hear about where it started for you and particularly how your parents did in shaping your beliefs about yourself as you were growing up in the family. So tell us a bit about what it was like growing up in your home and, and how well your parents did shaping your self-esteem. Yeah, sure, thanks. So my, uh, my dad, he came over from the Netherlands when he was about six uh, and uh, so when he arrived, he, he grew up in an immigration camp, and you know, so they had a very poor start, a very poor background, um, and uh, they struggled, I suppose, to find their feet. And as they were growing up, um, you know, English not being their first language, um, you know, my dad and, and family struggled a bit. And my dad didn't realise at the time, but he actually had he has dyslexia, uh, and right. so. As he was growing up, struggling to learn English and then struggling to read because of dyslexia, he knew that he was you know, more intelligent than the marks that he was getting and that type of thing. And um, you know, just to see how far he's come in his life now. So uh, you know, even though his marks at school were really poor um, because of, again, his dyslexia and, and English being his second language, he was still able to have quite a successful career and you know, make something of himself and you know, okay. he spoke a lot about um, and, and probably <laughs> it started to um, kind of you know become a bit of a cliche around the house and, and, and that type of thing but almost you know, he started talking a lot about you, know, you can do anything um, anything yeah, you right. want you, know, you can do that and you know I suppose and, and my mum was always very stable uh, in, in her um, uh, I suppose outlook on life 
in her you know love for us and her presence for us you know that type of thing and I suppose my dad was the dreamer still is the dreamer kind of like I am and then my mum was the realist kind of like my wife is I suppose Um, and so you know it was nice to have that balance at home growing up Um, you know I was the middle child still am the middle child and you know so I I suppose my way of getting attention growing up was always to um, be loud um, to try to be a little bit jokey, um, you know, make people laugh, that type of thing. So, um, yeah. and, you know, like it kind of ruffled the feathers, I suppose, with my brother and sister, unfortunately, when I was younger. But, um, you know, it was, we certainly grew up in a very loving, caring environment. Um, I, I think one of the biggest things that stands out for me in terms of who my parents are and the way that they, um, I suppose, cared for us and, and helped us develop and grow as young people was that, you know, when I was going into uni, I actually, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, you know, they were telling me that maybe I should become a lawyer because I was great at arguing, <laughs> you know, yeah. all that type of thing. But, you know, I didn't want to do that. My marks weren't there. Um, you know, I didn't end up getting into the course that I wanted to get into. I wanted to get into graphics design at uni. I didn't get into that. I got into architecture. I didn't like it. <laughs> So I started doing psychology, and, and you know, my parents just you know, kept saying, Dave, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I kept thinking, I've got no idea. But one day, at that line, I just said, look, I want to become a psychologist. You know, and I didn't, but I just said, I want to become a psychologist. I can see myself lying on the couch. And I was like, seeing, having my clients, you know, lying on the couch, and I'm talking to them about stuff and just trying to make something up to, to make them happy. And I think they saw straight through that. And they're like, Dave, we don't even <laughs> care what you become. Like, really? Yeah, we don't really mind what you become, as long as you strive to be your very best at it. Not the best in the world. We don't want that. We just want you to be your very best at whatever it is that you become. Um, mm. And I suppose for me that just created a great sense of comfort. Um, okay. A great sense of clarity, I suppose, in terms of you know that pressure that I thought was there for some reason isn't there. <laughs> And just to understand that there is a great sense of support for me um, in whatever I chose to go forward. So I think, you know, I've carried that with me as I've moved forward in terms of whatever it is that I do. I try to, I suppose, be my best at. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, were you aware of times growing up, so you know, after you felt the parent, your parents take the pressure off and let go of mm. They're wanting for you, and you were able to then explore what it was that you wanted for you. Uh, were you aware of times where you were limited by the fear of not being good enough, or, or a form of insecurity as you developed as yourself? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. Um, you know, I think it's something that um, most—I'm not going to say all because I haven't checked with everybody, but my yeah. assumption would be most, if not all, really. Um, people growing up would have deals of insecurity, and I know that I certainly did. Uh, mm. You know, like, again, my dad being quite intelligent, um, and you know, particularly with maths and inventions and that type of thing, like when my maths scores weren't high enough, um, I don't think he said anything negative to me at all, um, but I just kind of felt like it wasn't living up to expectations of where I should be, that type of thing. So, yeah, yeah. You know, there were some marks I was getting in school that I thought, um, you know, because of that, my self-esteem was lowered because my marks weren't high enough. Uh, even in terms of, I don't know why, but um, shyness or insecurity in terms of uh, cre- creating 
good friendships, you know, when I was at school. So normally I'd have one or two really good close friends, um, but kind of struggled in terms of reaching out to more people. Um, I was always on the back foot with that. Uh, kind of waited for people to reach out for me, I suppose, to develop the friendships. And, and that's something that kind of still, in a way, stays with me um, to this day in terms of um, a natural instinct, I suppose, in a new environment is for me to step back, uh, not yeah, go right. up to people, even if there's someone that I know, um, an acquaintance who I've met before, and you know, my natural instinct is to, well, hope they don't see me, <laughs> instead of, yeah, hang sure. on, I can go up and have a chat. So... I think for me, probably the greatest insecurities growing up was probably more about me fitting in with other people. Um, mm. You know, that obsessive comparison disorder that we have. Um, so I think, you know, that kind of inhibited me in terms of making more friendships. Like, I've got incredible friendships to this day. You know, one I've had since I was in year 10. Um, it's been yep. fundamental to who I am today. Um, you know, my wife, I met her when I was in year 10 as well. <laughs> Um, you know, so I have had key friendships from then, but I suppose in terms of branching out um, and investing even more in more friendships, um, I think that's probably one area that I, I struggled in uh, when I was younger mm. and then even through till now. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you're right. I think it is a, a universal challenge and uh, whether parents are good or poor at instilling self-esteem, you know, you can't just make you kids believe they're awesome. Um, mm. you know, we all go through this questioning of and working out our own opinion of ourselves. Um, but I'm I'm curious, you know, looking at your work today and looking at um, you know, some of the fantastic stuff that you're doing, obviously you've had to work on that. You know, obviously there's been a series of of personal growth in your own journey to be able to be where you are today, whereas you know, some people may have not found a way to overcome insecurity and so have never allowed themselves to step into a full and meaningful life or, or doing great work in the world. So I'm really curious about the stuff that's worked for you as you've journeyed and become who you are today. Uh, can you think of things along the way that you think have been particularly useful in in building confidence and, and owning your own value and worth internally rather than needing to compare yourself to others? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. There's some things that I intentionally do and there's a couple of other yep. things that kind of just happened. <laughs> Um, okay. experiences that, that came about that really helped me learn and grow. Um, one of those experiences was I was working as like a youth worker called a campus minister uh, at a school for about three years. And part of that job was for me to walk around and get to know lots of students and kind of just, um, not a counsellor, but just to be a trusted adult for them. Um, that yeah. sort of thing. And you know, for the first three years... Like a, like a chaplain that, kind of role. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Uh, and so for the first three years of doing that, I, looking back now, I was actually quite needy. Um, I yeah, needed right. the students to like me. Uh, I needed to be accepted by the students. You know, there was a seat in the middle of the whole school ground and I'd sit there as the students w would walk between classes and I'd say g'day and all that type of thing. And if a student didn't respond to me, I'd be thinking, why don't they like me? Yeah. Um, you know, like, don't this doesn't student like me? Well, what am I doing wrong? That type of thing. And it was an emotional roller coaster. If students would reply to me and say, G'day, how are you? I'd feel great. If they'd invite me in to a chat or whatever, I'd feel great. But if they didn't, I'd feel really quite negative. And then yeah, well. I went overseas for a year after that first three years, and I worked in a, a high needs school. 
as a teacher's assistant. And I worked there with mainly with students who had social and emotional difficulties. And so these have been students who have been expelled from you know, nearly every other school. And um, you know, my first day working there, there was kids throwing stuff at me. There was kids trying to beat me up, <laughs> literally trying to fight me in the hallway. Um, you know, yeah. And then there'd be students on the roof throwing rocks at the house next door, so I'd try to get them to stop, and they start throwing rocks at me. And, you know, it was a, it was a complete eye-opener. And, you know, like... <laughs> Also, I just want to be careful because obviously it wasn't the students' fault for this behaviour. Yeah, it was all yeah. about their background, yeah, sure. their upbringing and all of that. Um, however, my approach to my work there had to change very quickly from do they like me to how can I get them to stop wanting to beat me up? Yeah. Which meant that I had to put my ego aside yeah. and instead I had to look after them. I could think, hmm. where's this student at? mindset emotionally all that today what do they need from me today so that they can be their best and not just so they don't beat me up but so they can be their best self and make better choices and that type of thing and so that six months working there was probably the most challenging job i've done but it taught me so much it taught me about again it's not about me it's about them and so then after that time i came back into that school back here in brisbane uh, for another three years, and my whole perception on my work changed. So I'd sit on that seat again. When the students would walk past, I'd wave, say, G'day, how you going? If they didn't wave back, instead of thinking, poor me, I'd think, oh, I wonder if they're going to a mass test right now and they're freaking out about that. I wonder if they just had a really mm, bad lesson. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, what's going on for this student today? What do they need from me? So when I started to externalize, like focus on the other, on somebody else, I found that there was less space for me to worry about self. Um, you know, it's that whole thing of where your attention goes, your energy flows. Um, mm. And when we focus on our own stuff, our own negativity, um, we can kind of dwell on that far too much and just get it deeper. But when we start looking externally, what does this person need from me? What's going on for them? I think, in a way, we forget about self. Yeah. And we start building more confidence in, in terms of you know, being able to help somebody else. And then, you know, we feel good when we help somebody else. We feel good, and that boosts our confidence as well. So that was one key experience for me that kind of just happened, um, but was a massive turning point for me. Um, and then to the other part of the question, in terms of what are the practices that I do intentionally, um, yep. so there's, there's a whole bunch, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of ones. So I, um, it, it's all about building up, um, well, self, well, your own well-being, your own emotional intelligence and your self-care. Um, so I have like, you know, um, morning routines and not every morning is as ideal as this because I've got two young boys and <laughs> household yeah. in the morning can be very chaotic, but you know, I try to do things in the morning like, mindfulness um you know when we spend time in mindfulness we are able to have greater perspectives um we're able to be more in control of your thoughts you know when the negative thoughts pop up for me i kind of i I talk to myself in the third person and dave you're having this thought that this person doesn't like you or dave you're having this thought that you're not going to be good enough then you know let that thought go and then replace it with the moment when i was good enough replace it with memories um, of real experiences from the past that counteract that negative self-thought. Um, so that, mindfulness... Can I just, just, press, just press pause on that? Because that's just that's such a, mm. a sharp insight and, and so useful. Uh, you know, because these thoughts about, 
inadequacy and, in, and insecurity. They are, they're in the form of story. Um, but the, the problem when those stories go unexamined, they become mm. truth. Like they yeah. just, they take on a life of their own and they just gather more and more evidence and just mm-hmm. gather momentum and become self-fulfilling mm-hmm. prophecies. So the value of mindfulness is just to get out of the story, get off the merry-go-round and see see the story for the fact that it's a story and, and observe, you've got some choice here and there's other ways to look at this same story and you actually can play with this story and swap bits out and change the set, change the colours, change the, the props, alter the storyline, you know, which is such an incredible part of being a human being, the, the ability to be external to your own thought life and be mindful. Uh, so that's, yeah, such a great insight and obviously very useful for you and I'm sure very useful for anyone who would, who would try that. Yeah, absolutely. And as you're saying, it's kind of like, so we've just come back from a couple of weeks in New Zealand with my family and uh, you know, we got to see all these rivers and canyons and so on that were carved out by glacial um, ice and, and water yep. and rivers. The pics looked over. amazing, by the way. I, I saw those photos <laughs> on the socials. That, yeah, it looked like it was extraordinary. Oh, mate, it was. It was absolutely incredible. And um, in so many ways, you know, for the family and all that stuff as well. And, you know, look, see, seeing all that, the, the natural crevasses and rivers and, and, and carvings in the rock was a, a really strong reminder for me in terms of, as you were just saying, when we focus on negative self-talk, so... Um, Okay, for me, for example, getting up in front of a whole group of students day in, day out, um, it took me a very long time to actually get used to that and to like it. So I used to really dislike it at first. I felt sick before doing it. I'd tell myself I'm shy. So every time I'd tell myself that I'm shy and I don't like it and I can't do it, what I'm actually doing is strengthening neuropathways in my mind, which is what you're talking about. So making those rivers, making those... Um, channels cut out by the water making that deeper and deeper and deeper every single time i have that thought and i focus on that thought and if i let that thought go but acknowledge it for being there let it go and replace that thought with i've done this before and it was successful i've done this before and i've enjoyed it there's people in my life who like Mm. me every time i replace with that thought what i'm actually doing is creating a new stream, a new river. I'm cutting out new rock, I suppose, making that deeper and deeper and deeper. So creating new neuropathways within my mind that are stronger and stronger. So then it's not about completely um, making those negative thoughts disappear, but it's about making it easier for me to have those positive self-affirming thoughts. Um, so, yeah, absolutely that's, spot on. To that's fantastic. Saying, the more we yeah. feed those negative thoughts, the stronger they get. So it's about counteracting mm. that with the positive ones. So good. Um, are there any other things that you've found particularly useful in your own journey, strengthening self-esteem? Absolutely. Uh, journaling um, yep. uh, in, in two ways. One is journaling out the negativity. Um, journaling out, out the negativity. Yeah, yeah. So if I have some negative, a lot of negative thinking happening, sometimes I just journal it. And then when you see it in front of you, you can see it for what it is then. Um, Hmm. It's kind of like you can see it as a third person. Um, It's no longer in your head. It's out there. So you can look at it a little bit more critically. Um, And so that's a great way just to process it. And then I can think about, well, what can I do now with that? So journaling in that way and also gratitude journaling. So again, where your attention goes, your energy flows. And when you focus on gratitude, you can't be anxious and grateful at the same time. 
Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of sure. gratitude journaling or just gratitude thinking as I'm brushing, brushing my teeth, that type of thing. Um, yeah. Exercise. I, I really struggle if I don't have exercise in the morning. So I try to go for a run or do a seven-minute workout at home every single morning um, because it's not about long-term fitness as such. It's more about if I exercise today, my day is going to be better. I'm going to think more Mm. clearly. I'm going to feel better about myself. I'm going to show up even better for everybody who I meet today. Um, It releases endorphins. It's a stress release, all of that. So exercising, um, sleeping really well is absolutely critical. What we know is that when you don't get enough sleep, um, they say the average adult needs about seven and a half hours. So when you get less than that, it actually affects your regulation of the way that you're able to regulate your mood. So if we're a lot yep. more negative, um, we see the whole world around us more negative. Our negativity bias really steps up a lot. Um, and we're just a lot more moody. We have more mood swings. So by sleeping well, you are able to have a stronger mood, um, more positive, you see the world more clearly, um, yeah, a lot of benefits come with that. Another one is trying to eat well. Um, you know, food is data for your body and your brain. And if you have poor food choices, um, you're more you're foggier. Uh, it reduces your mood, your attention span, all of that. So trying to eat as clean as possible, have as much water as possible, um, those types of things as well. Um, and oh, another one, spending time with really positive people. Yeah. You know, like there's um, particularly, okay, so with my two boys now, my two sons, I'm really careful, and my wife is too, just about the words that we use for them because, you know, we know that our words uh, become their internal dialogue. So being really so, careful. Say that again, your your words become their internal dialogue. Correct, yeah. So mm-hmm. if we talk to them with a lot of negativity, if we say, oh, you're not good enough, you need to work harder, all this negative talk to them, that will become the way they think about themselves. Mm. So, you know, at a, at a very young age, your internal dialogue, that tape that plays over and over and over, is created by the adults in your life um, in terms of the way they talk to you, they see the world, the, even the way they believe in themselves, the way they carry themselves, the way they express their self and their negativity and that type of thing. So, you know, um, I suppose I was using that example with my children in terms of uh, I need to be really careful for um, how I talk and how I carry myself when I'm around them. And because of that, I also need to be really careful myself in terms of who I spend my time with because, you know, I know in my past, if I was hanging out with people who were negative, um, just on everything in general, uh, people who are negative on me, then I'd start feeling even worse about myself. So I try to spend more yeah, sure. time with really positive people, people who lift me and so on. Can I just ask you, back to the parenting piece, um, yeah. how do you cope with the pressure of having to get it right as a parent? So, you know, you, you, you know, feeling the weight of, my goodness, you know, my words become my children's internal dialogue. So... I can't afford to let them down here. I need to get this right all the time and make sure I'm, I'm always speaking positively and using empowering language with them. Uh, how do you cope with the, the pressure of um, you know, the thought that you're shaping them? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, talking about insecurity, I think there's a whole new level of insecurity when you become a parent. <laughs> um, am I being a good enough dad? Am I being a good enough mum? You know, I think there's a lot of external pressure on that. And 
I really had to grow into this and being a parent. Um, I thought I was ready, and I really wasn't. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I've learned so much. And you know, we've made mistakes as parents. Um, we've probably disciplined our children in ways that I wouldn't do it today. Um, spoken to my sons in ways that I'm not proud of, in ways that I, I wouldn't do today. Um, and, you know, yeah, I used to absolutely be, um, beat myself up on that. I used to be really negative and down on myself because I have really high expectations of, you know, when we react and we say things that we don't want to say or that, that doesn't line up yeah. with our values, um, particularly in, in the work that I do, the reading I do, all of that, you know, there's, it can be very easy for me to have this expectation of, Dave, you need to be better. <laughs> like, you know, you work in the space of emotional intelligence. You help young people and all that, and you know you know the right things to do. And so when I do the wrong thing, when I react or whatever, then it can be again really easy for me to get hard on myself and get really negative. Mm. Um, I suppose what's important, what's been helping me, is remembering that yeah, we make mistakes. My parents made mistakes. My wife's parents made mistakes, and we still turned out okay. We still turned yeah. out good enough. And a, a friend of mine, uh, she's a, a child psychologist. Um, her name's Elle. She might be listening. And she um, talks about being a good enough parent. That's all that we need to be. You know, there is this yeah. pressure to be perfect, but according to lots of research, all we need to be is a good enough parent. And when I heard that, I actually became a lot more comfortable in my own skin as being a parent for my sons. Well, well, I think it's a really important piece, being good enough, because I think even the modelling around being good enough rather than being perfect uh, is a very healthy space for your kids to then explore their own behaviour and their own choices. If, mm. if there's no scope for getting it wrong as parents, then there's no scope for getting it wrong as kids. Yep. Uh, you know, so one of the stories that my wife and I have, have told ourselves and our kids about our parenting is that, yeah, you know, the net effect of us as parents is going to be positive. We're going to have more good days and bad days together. We'll have more good conversations and bad conversations. We'll make mistakes. That's right. We'll we'll react. We'll be tired. We'll get frustrated. We'll we'll do we'll do dumb things, but we'll apologise and we'll clean up the mess afterwards. And it's going to be okay. And then and then like I, I, the funny the thing that really impacted me was. Now, obviously, getting to hear people's stories every day and and seeing often the innocuous things that got inside them as a as an origin point for limiting beliefs. Mm. Often, it wasn't the really painful moments from their parents. It was the really subtle things that parents may not have even it might not have even been a mistake from the parent, but the child interpreted it like that. Yeah, you know, I think of one one woman who, uh, you know, as a three year old, her mum came home from the hospital with baby number two and cried for two weeks. And it was that moment that this three-year-old thought, oh, my goodness, if I was a better kid, I could make my mum happy right now, but clearly I can't. Yeah. So, oh, wow. You know, so apart from that, childhood was perfect. Parents were great. But even then, the child still decided to believe something negative. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that just was so useful for me to go, ah, even if we get it perfect, there's no guarantee uh, our kids are going to have a perfect self-esteem. So... We'll do our best, and then we'll get them a good coach when they're 18. Clean up the mess. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, excellent. So, uh, also just backtracking too. Um, great, great that you talked about the um, the meds. Is, is meds an acronym that you use for that mental health piece that you mentioned before? Is what an acronym? Acronym, sorry. Um, meds. Um, you mentioned mindfulness. Exercise, diet, and sleep. I don't know if you have you seen that act, that as an acronym. Med? Oh, meds. 
Yeah, I have seen that around. I haven't used it myself. I do like that. I'm going to have to borrow that one. Thank you. Well, well, you just use it. You, you already are using it. Because when you said the, yeah. the four things that work, work best for you, you know, it was those, those very four things. Um, the, the last interview I did was with uh, a positive psychologist, Ellen Jackson, and she was talking about having a baseline for mental health using mm-hmm. those four things. And all the research says that is just super important to, to do those things well. Um, so that's great that that's that's something you've reinforced as well. Um, so so tell us a bit about the emotional intelligence piece. Could could you first define that term, and then uh, yeah, tell us a bit about what you're doing with young people in that space. Yeah, sure. So emotional intelligence is all about the way in which we process, understand, and deal with emotions of ourselves and other people. So um, there's many different models of emotional intelligence. The one that I work with is in terms of your own self-emotional awareness, so understanding uh, the types of emotions that we're feeling and where they come from, so uh, increasing our um, emotional vocabulary. Uh, a lot of people um, have a very fine, a very small emotional vocabulary, you know, like the mad, angry, sad, frustrated, scared, that type of thing. So. Um, yeah. Having a self-awareness, you know, to, is to increase that emotional vocabulary, understand where they're coming from, and, and understand the triggering moments that create that emotion. Uh, then there's self-emotional just, management. Just on that, just, yeah. I just wanted to, to draw out that because I think that's a really vital point. I can remember reading something Anthony Robbins wrote about that very mm-hmm. piece, the, the vocabulary, because mm-hmm. the words we use, if we find a new word, we can have a new experience. So. Yes. I can remember doing his exercise around learn a whole bunch of new emotional words, which are nuanced, which have subtle variations. And every time you use a new word, you can you get to have a, a new emotional experience. Um, feeling peeved is different to feeling frustrated. Feeling mm. joyful is different to feeling happy. Mm. Um, and just playing with that language just broadened the depth of emotional experience which just was such a, a wonderful thing just off the back of learning some new words and broadening the vocabulary so that's that's really cool that you bring that up carry on yeah no, exactly and, and that leads really nicely into the emotional self-management in terms of i think i'm experiencing this emotion but maybe it's something else so with your example ah. i've to help me become more okay about speaking and actually love speaking in front of an audience i've turned nervousness into excitement because what I used to label as nervousness, you know, the heart beating faster, palms getting sweaty, all of that, I'd say there's nervousness. So I remember, hang on, excitement is pretty much, is very, very similar. So I'd start thinking about that as excitement, and this is my body's way of getting myself prepared for what's coming next. So, so what was the line, was the what was the line you used? I, I think it was something, but maybe it was something else. What was the line you used? Uh, so... Um, Looking at nervousness mm-hmm. as becoming sorry. Excitement. You, the way you started uh, talking about um, emotion, uh, uh, I can't remember the word you use. How did you describe um, this aspect of emotional intelligence? Sorry, emotional yeah, of sorry. Emotional self-management. Ah, great. Yes. And how did you define that again? Yeah, sure. So the way in which we understand and man- so the way that we manage our own emotions. So. Um, once we've labelled it in self-awareness, then how do we manage that emotion? So um, if I feel really excited right now, but it's inappropriate given the situation I'm in to act in a very excited manner, how do I calm that down a bit? Uh, if I'm feeling really angry because my 
um, something's not working out or whatever, yeah. uh, then how can I not act in an angry way but act in an, a calm manner while still feeling anger? So the way in which we yeah. uh, manage our own emotions. Um, another one is yeah, our... Yep, another one well, is the and, you, and you also mentioned, sorry, sorry, there was just one key, one key thing there which I just think was really insightful. I'd never heard it described before. Sorry to labor the point. Um, mm. Where you said, you know, I think I'm feeling nervous, but maybe it's mm. excitement. So that mm. idea of just observing your own label on your emotion and questioning whether it's the correct label, is that, that's kind of what you meant, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And as you're saying, reframing it. Mm. So... You know, this nervousness, maybe it's excitement. Or hmm. even understanding, so one of the things I talk a lot about with the students is fear. You know, don't be fearless, because my personal belief is that fearlessness is actually unhealthy. We can't be fearless. Sure. Um, yep. We have chemical reactions in the brain that trigger automatically. You have nothing to do with that. It just happens, <laughs> and it creates yep. this fear. What you do have power over is how you interpret the fear and what you do next. So being aware that I have this fear, I have this doubt, I have this anxiety, that doesn't mean I need to back off. That actually means that maybe um, I need to be brave now or maybe I need to look at this from mm. a different angle or, or be more careful or whatever, but I can still take positive action. That's really cool. And Just... so then that moves on to uh, emotional awareness of others. Um, so being aware of someone else's emotional state. And given, you know, if they're nervous or anxious, what's the best way for me to approach them? If they're really excited, what's the best way for me to approach them as well? So people who do that really well, they're the ones who empathize nicely with others. They're the ones who mirror other people's states really, really well um, and build rapport very quickly with other people. So that one, again, is um, uh, emotional awareness, emotional management of others. Um, another one is uh, awareness of others' emotions too. So again, being able to label what other people are feeling in the moment. Um, again, when, when we do that, we can be really empathetic and compassionate with other people. Leadership, key aspects of lead, or all of this is key aspects of leadership, but particularly mm. understanding other people. How can we connect with their deeper why, their, their, their emotional side? Because all of our decisions um, come back to that emotional trigger. Is it good for us or is it bad for us? So as mm. a leader, as someone who wants to have good relationships, it's really important to be able to understand um, that you know, we do influence emotions in other people. So being really careful of first acknowledging where they're at in terms of their emotional state and then what do they need from me um, you know, to enhance their state or to work with them or inspire them, motivate them, comfort them, that type of thing. Um, yeah, and then, so they're the, the four key areas. There's other things around that as well, like you know, in terms of leadership, another element can be inspiring performance. Um, there's other ones around um, authenticity and also uh, decision-making. So you know, some people make decisions purely on emotion. Others make decisions purely based on logic. Um, and there's time for both as well, you know, like naming your child, that can be a very emotional decision, and so it should be. But then in yeah. terms of there's a fire, what do we do? Maybe that's a more logical decision. Um, yeah. So there's a time and a place for both, and, and knowing when to tap into logic and when to tap into emotion can be really important. Okay. Well, if people are interested in finding out more about emotional intelligence, are there books you'd recommend or is there resources people can find online? What, what do you suggest? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Daniel Goleman 
he was one of the pioneers, I suppose, in terms of writing and commenting on emotional intelligence. So he yep. has books, I think it's just called Emotional Intelligence um, by yep. Daniel Goleman. I've also done some work with a group from the Swin- Swinburne University down in Melbourne um, with Dr. Con Stow, and they have an organization called Aristotle EI, and they are creating programs uh, for schools that go from prep right through to year 12, and it's all about enhancing the emotional intelligence and well-being of students. And so they're doing some incredible work out there. Um, in the corporate world, I've also done some work with Genos, G-E-N-O-S, and they do lots of emotional intelligence training and consulting uh, for the workplace. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, speaking of books, have there been any books that have been particularly useful for you along your journey that you recommend for others? Yeah, absolutely. One of them is called The Happiness Trap, uh, and mm-hmm. that one is by Dr. Russ Harris, and that one's um, focusing on mindfulness. You know, just the the trap that we get into of I need to be happy, I need to be happy. So if I have these negative thoughts, I'm a bad person. Why am I having this? I want to be happy. So instead of squashing negativity, instead of squashing self-doubt and all that, it's all about how do we, again, interpret it, how do we process it, how do we let it go, uh, and then take valued action. So that one for me was a pretty big eye-opener. Um, and another one is Dr. Rick Hansen. I've actually had him on the Do Life Better podcast, and uh, it was real treat speaking with him and his, uh, his yeah. book's called Hardwiring Happiness. He has another okay. one called Resilience. Uh, and so he talks again about the idea of drawing in the good, bringing in the good. So when you have a good moment, don't just bounce from that to something else. Sit with that positive moment for about 5, 10, 20 seconds. Experience the positive moment and when you do that, um, this links back to creating those new neuropathways in your brain. So you know, when you sit with the positive moments, it yeah. creates new pathways in your brain for happiness and positivity and self-confidence. So That's really interesting because I think helpful. we'd probably be, I'd imagine we'd probably be more inclined to sit with the negative stuff rather than sit with the positive stuff. We're more likely to mull on what's not working or what's not going right or the, the, the embarrassing moments, the disappointing uh, events rather than the things we've done well. Exactly, and that comes back to the negativity bias, um, yeah. which is the only reason the human race exists today is because we have this negativity bias where you know, our brain's most basic function is survival, to keep us alive. So mm. caveman ancestors had to remember where the saber-toothed tigers were so they could stay alive, and, and maybe that was more important for them than the smile from one of their fellow clan yeah. tribe members. So um, we still carry that negativity bias today, as you said. Uh, which is why it's so important for us to intentionally, deliberately, purposely look for, acknowledge and celebrate positives in our environment, uh, in people around us, in our relationships and also within ourselves. So good. Um, Okay, is there anything that we've missed, anything else you think is particularly useful that aligns with helping people do the work around overcoming insecurity so it doesn't hinder them in in the life they desire to live? Yeah, um, you've, you've done well. You've asked lots of really good questions. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I, I think I think there's there's two elements, and we've probably spoken about this, and maybe just to reiterate, uh, there's two things I think. One is um, try not to have no insecurity. So that's lots of double negative, lots of negatives there. Try, <laughs> so allowing yourself to have insecurity, I think, is important. 
instead of pursuing a life free of insecurity, because then every time we experience that insecurity, we're going to be worrying about being insecure. We're going to be anxious about being insecure. We're going to think that, again, we're weak, we're broken, something's wrong with us, that type of thing. So instead of trying to go completely without insecurity, because... I don't know if I've met someone who does go without insecurity. Yeah. I think it's about being okay that I'm insecure. Being okay within my insecurity, acknowledging it being there, acknowledging that it's normal, acknowledging that everyone has moments of insecurity. And what's really important is that in that moment is how you interpret it and how you process it and the weight that you give to it. So, mm. again, you know, one, one thing that really helps with me is creating perspective. So, okay, I feel insecure in this moment. It's not the be-all and end-all, though. There's so many other positive things in my life right now that I can also focus on. So I think trying not to go without insecurity, but instead embracing it, dealing with it, and by doing so, giving those insecure voices less power and less strength mm. um, to help you move on more quickly. And the second one is just continually build yourself up and build up your relationships. Um, I like the acronym MEDS. Um, and that's perfect. Where the more you look after yourself, the more you build up yourself, your well-being, your resilience, your fitness, your moods, all of that, the more effective you are in all aspects of life. And then surround mm. yourself. Uh, we talk about you're the average of the five people you associate with the most. Um, so, so, And those five people, they also help to shape your internal dialogue. Uh, so surround yourself with five people who are really good for you, who boost you, who build you as well. That's excellent and so sharp. Kind of like a, a good place to leave the conversation. Um, I'll, I'll make sure there's everything you've mentioned, the key ideas and books, references, I'll make sure in the show notes that people can go find you. But if people are fascinated about the work that you're doing or want to find out more about you and uh, what you represent where can people find you online where do you hang out the most yeah excellent so personally i'm probably on instagram the most uh at dave jorner that's d-a-v-e-j-o-r-n-a um so i'm on there the most uh you, you can contact me directly very open to that uh another one for the podcast is at do life better podcast on instagram and then for Project Hatch, for the work that we do in schools, and we're also doing some work with teachers as well. Uh, so for that work, um, we are on Instagram and Facebook, again, at Project underscore Hatch, I believe, for Instagram. And uh, just all the Ws, projecthatch.com.au, um, or my direct email even is dave at projecthatch.com.au. So, yeah, very happy for anyone out there to get in contact and um, you know, to chat about emotional intelligence or you know, what we've been talking about or working skills, absolutely. Wonderful. I'll make sure those links are in the notes as well. Thanks, it's been very enjoyable, Dave. You've added a lot of insight and I'm sure people will find your comments very valuable. So thanks again for sharing out of the depths of your own journey and it's uh, yeah been very valuable. We'll oh, end the conversation yeah, there. Pleasure. That's great. Uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, well, thanks, Simon. You've been listening to The Insecurity Project. If you're interested in finding out more about dealing with your own insecurity, check out the 30-day online Overcoming Insecurity Bootcamp. It combines high-quality frameworks with one-on-one coaching to help you eradicate the fear of not being good enough and give yourself permission to really flourish in life. For more information, check out jamonfraser.com.au.